to all who are weary and need rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who feel worthless and wonder if God cares, to all who fail and desire strength, to all who sin and need a Savior, this church opens wide her doors with a welcome from Jesus Christ, the ally of his enemies, the defender of the guilty, the justifier of the inexcusable, and the friend of sinners. Welcome. You're welcome here at Grace. You're welcome also to come tonight at 6 p.m. I teach a class on church history called Church History for Dummies, taught by a dummy, by the way. And tonight, in the next couple classes, we're going to be looking at the New Testament canon. How did we get the New Testament? How did the early church decide which books should be included in the New Testament canon and what books were excluded and why? What was the criteria? How did they determine these are the books that we're going to include in the New Testament and become a part of God's authoritative word? So you can come back tonight at 6 o'clock if that interests you in the education building at one of the classes on the end at the end of the hall. But you're welcome here at Grace. And we welcome you Because Jesus welcomes us. He welcomes sinners. He welcomes all kinds of sinners. As Ralph Davis said, Jesus also welcomes religious sinners. Some smell of pigs and some smell of church pews. So it doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. If you, like the younger brother in Luke chapter 15, if you smell like pigs... Come on home. Jesus will receive you. And if you like the older brother in Luke chapter 15, if you smell like church pews, come on home. Jesus will receive you. It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done, Jesus will have you. Prostitute, religious, goody, two-shoes, churchgoer, tax collector, Political zealot, doubting Thomas, fisherman, Pharisee, hypocrite, drug addict, sibling of Jesus, bruised reed, flickering wick, whoever or whatever. Just come on home, y'all. Now you might be thinking, but how could Jesus receive me? How could he love me? Well, who hasn't thought that before? So yeah, sometimes we think that God doesn't love us, don't we? Do you ever feel like God doesn't love you? That he doesn't welcome you? Do you ever think that your failures actually change God's feelings for you? I do, all the time. I know it's wrong, but I am so tempted to believe that Jesus is that fickle. And that's why I need the gospel every day. I needed it this morning really bad. I don't know if you've had one of those mornings where you're like, man, after yesterday, I need the gospel bad today. That was me today. That's why I need Jesus to save me from my little kingdom of self. Sadly, many Christians are like me. We make the focus of the Christian life about us and not about Jesus. And when we do this, we naturally see our many sins and we naturally see our many failures. And then we slip into believing that God's love is as fickle as we fear. And so one book that has really helped me to understand God's love 
is a book that was first published in 1692. Get that. By Puritan Walter Marshall. He said this. You cannot love God if you are under the continual secret suspicion that he is really your enemy. You cannot love God if you secretly think he condemns and hates you. This kind of slavish fear will compel you to some hypocritical obedience. You will never truly love God if you are compelled only by fear. Your love for God must be won and drawn out by your understanding of God's love and goodness towards you. You simply cannot love God unless you know and understand how much He loves you. You will never love God, you will never grow in holiness unless you understand just how much Jesus loves you. And the good news of the gospel that we'll see today is this. Jesus woos and welcomes you. When you're having those days where you're like, I really need the gospel bad, but does he welcome me? Yes, on those days, Jesus woos and welcomes you. He woos and welcomes us into his presence. He leads us with cords of kindness. He actually wins our hearts and draws us out with his love. And here's the crazy thing about it. He is more ready to meet us with his grace than we ever dared dream. He actually invites us to come and enjoy him. To pour our hearts out before him. And he's the one who initiates it. How awesome is that? I mean, think about this. Jesus is the one who initiates all this. He, the holy and pure and righteous one, initiates all of this welcoming kindness, all of this, y'all come here and enjoy me. He welcomes that with people like us. People like us. And we'll see him do that with the prophet Elijah today. So sir, turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 19. Over and over again in this text, Jesus will initiate interaction with Elijah. He'll draw Elijah out with his goodness and love. He'll woo Elijah to cast all of his cares on him because he cares for Elijah. He'll actually woo Elijah out of a cave, a literal cave, and the figurative cave of his misunderstanding. The figurative cave of his misunderstanding of God's love and how he deals with his fickle people. So look at 1 Kings chapter 19, beginning in verse 9. Hear the word of the Lord. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. If you recall from last week, we saw that the angel of the Lord made pancakes for Elijah and told him to get up and eat because he was going on a 40-day journey to Mount Horeb. And we are told in verse 8 that Elijah got up, he ate his pancakes, and he drank his water, and then he went in the strength of that food for 40 days and nights all the way down to Mount Horeb, the Mount of God. 
But where the angel of the Lord sends Elijah is very significant. The angel of the Lord is sending Elijah about 260 miles away down south to Mount Horeb. But what's the big deal about that? Well, an observant Old Testament reader would smell the smoke of Mount Sinai here because Mount Horeb is another name for Mount Sinai. So if you had a scratch and sniff Bible, I wish somebody would make one one day. Remember the old scratch and sniff stickers? I don't know if they still make them, but when I was a kid, that was the thing. If they had a scratch and sniff Bible, there would be a little round sticker of a mountain next to these verses. And if you scratched it, you would smell smoke. Elijah is headed to Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb, and this is a big deal. I mean, you know Mount Sinai, right? This is where Moses saw the burning bush and the Lord said to him, take off your sandals because this is holy ground. And this is where Yahweh came down and appeared to the nation of Israel and gave Moses the Ten Commandments. So it's very significant where Elijah is headed. Elijah is at Mount Sinai where Yahweh appeared and entered into covenant with the nation of Israel. This is where the nation declared their love and allegiance to God. It's where the Lord appeared in smoke and fire and earthquake and storm. And there's something really cool in the Hebrew language here. In verse 9, it says that Elijah came to a cave. In Hebrew, it says, the cave. The definite article, the, is there. It's not a cave, it's the cave. But there has been no mention of a particular cave up to this point. This is not the cave in chapter 18 that Obadiah hid 100 prophets in because that was uh, up near Mount Carmel in the north, not all the way down here in the south. In Hebrew, the definite article, the word the, can be used to reflect a person or a thing that has been previously mentioned. But how far back can we go? There's no other cave mentioned. So why does the author of 1 Kings use the definite article here? What cave is it? Where is the cave? I think the answer is found all the way back in Exodus chapter 33, where the Lord told Moses that he was going to put Moses in a cleft of the rock or in a cave on top of Mount Sinai when his glory passed by. Listen, Exodus 33 verses 18 to 22. Moses said, please show me your glory. And Yahweh said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So I think the cave here in 1 Kings 19 is the place where Moses hid from the presence of the Lord on Mount Sinai. Elijah is now at Sinai. He's at Covenant Mountain. And so it makes sense that he would go inside the cave that Moses went into. At this very spot where Elijah is, on top of Mount Sinai, is where Yahweh passed by Moses. 
And so when Moses asked to see God's glory, God's glory, God showed up and he declared his mercy and his grace and his steadfast love. Isn't that great? This is why Christianity has to be true, y'all. Because only God would save sinners. Only God would save people who actively rebel against him. And so God's very nature is mercy and grace and love. God shows his glory through saving sinners. He doesn't show his glory by nuking us with his power. He doesn't show his glory by blowing us to smithereens. He doesn't show his glory by flexing his muscles. He shows his glory by sending his son Jesus to die a brutal death on the cross and to save people who don't deserve to be saved. That's his glory. God's love is glory. And so Moses' prayer here to Yahweh on top of Sinai, show me your glory, is answered with what? With this incredible description of God. Merciful and gracious. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Listen, If God's glory is the answer to our deepest longings, and it is. If God's glory is the answer to our deepest longings, then we should be praying like Moses, show me your glory. God's glory is simply God himself becoming visible to us. God's glory is just God bringing his presence down to us and visiting us and displaying his beauty before us. I've told you many times before, but the Hebrew word for for glory just means weight or heaviness. Uh, Like I've told you, like in the the 70s and 60s and 70s, they used to say, whoa, man, that's heavy. What did they mean by that? That's profound. That's deep. Yeah, it's profound. It's deep. God saves sinners. Whoa, man. That's heavy. That's what glory means. The Hebrew word glory. So when we pray, show us your glory, we're praying that we would be a church where we and others feel the weightiness and the heaviness of God, where people come to grace and for the very first time they discover God. Or maybe they come here and they rediscover God, where they encounter the real Jesus of the Bible, not the Jesus they've heard about out there, not the Jesus they've been thinking about in their head, but the real Jesus of the Bible, who's slow to anger and merciful and gracious. We want people to come to grace and to leave and say, God is there. I felt him. I felt his presence. I felt his love. I felt his power. I felt his glory. We want to be a church where the wonderfully heavy, felt presence of God is the norm. We want people to feel and to sense just as we were singing that Jesus is better that God is beautiful and satisfying and we want people then and us included to do whatever it takes to enjoy him more 
Ray Ortland said, please show me your glory is our greatest prayer. It is asking the Lord to blow us away with his grace and mercy to the undeserving so that we worship him and live for him and obey him with joyous new boldness. And the watching world begins to think, my life has fallen apart and I need no one less than God to pick up the pieces. So that church is where I will go because God is obviously there. So let's be a church that welcomes Jesus and welcomes his glory. Let's be the church in town where people know that when their life is an absolute mess and it's falling to pieces, they think, I have to get to grace because Jesus is there. I mean, how about that? Let's keep praying that God would show us more of his glory here at Grace. Let's have the courage to welcome Jesus to totally restructure our lives. Let's pray that we would go deeper into his love. Let's keep praying Psalm 85, 6. Will you not revive us again that your people might rejoice in you? Let's keep praying that his presence would become even more tangible here. And it's been pretty tangible the last six to eight months. People are being set free. People are experiencing joy. People feel safe here. I love that about grace. People feel safe to bring their mess and their baggage and their sin to grace. But we want more, right? We don't want to settle. We always need revival, even when we're experiencing revival. We'll take more, Jesus. We don't want to settle. We want more of his glory showing up and changing us and satisfying. Who doesn't want to be changed? Man, I want to be changed. My family says, Jesus, change dad. He needs to be changed. I do. More of his glory showing up and changing us and satisfying us and setting us free. More of his presence, which is what our hearts are made for and which alone will satisfy our deepest longings. We want God to come to church, right? I mean, we want God to show up here every week, right? Otherwise, otherwise why are we here? If Jesus doesn't show up, then why in the world are we here? I come for Jesus. I come to experience Jesus. We come to church so that we can encounter the felt presence of God, right? So we want God to come to church. And if he doesn't show up, then let's just go home and watch football. I mean, the Dallas Cowboys are having a decent year. They're in the top of the division, even though they're five and four, I think, or five and three. They haven't been playing that great, but somehow they're in the top of the division. They're having a decent year. So if Jesus doesn't show up, then I'm just going to go home and watch the Cowboys. But what happens when God does show up? What happens when Jesus comes to church? Lives are changed, and people are set free. And sins are forgiven, and reconciliation happens, and egos are humbled. And this should be the norm for churches, right? This should be the norm. We should be like, what? That doesn't happen in your church? Man, every week people are set free, reconciliation Egos are humbled. I mean, prideful people walk in like a peacock, and they leave humbled. That doesn't happen in your church every week? The gospel does its work when Jesus shows up. It's what we're praying for and wanting. And so we leave then saying, what a Savior, and not what a sermon. 
And God gets glory big time as he shows off his mercy and kindness to sinners. I mean, who doesn't want more of that? Who doesn't want their children growing up in a church like that? And so Elijah is here on Covenant Mountain, and he's about to experience all of that Yahweh passing in front of you goodness, just like Moses did. But there are other similarities with Moses' time on Mount Horeb. Verse 8 says that Elijah was to go up to Mount Horeb in the strength provided by the food that the angel brought for 40 days and 40 nights. So this is certainly another allusion to Moses. When Moses was on top of Mount Sinai, he didn't eat or drink for 40 days, just like Elijah here. All of this is setting us up for what is going to transpire here. But notice how the Lord appears to Elijah. Two times, in verse 9 and in verse 13, it says that the Lord appeared to Elijah and asked him what he was doing on Mount Horeb, a.k.a. Covenant Mountain. It isn't that the Lord doesn't know. When Yahweh asks Elijah what he is doing at Sinai, it's actually the Lord inviting Elijah to come to him and to pour out his concern for the people of God. It's as if the Lord is saying, Elijah, what are you doing here on Covenant Mountain? Parking in Moses' parking spot at this place where I have led you? Why are you in Moses' man cave? Tell me what's going on in that little heart of yours. This was an invitation from the Lord to come before him and to plead his cause. God initiated this conversation. As we saw several weeks ago, he loves us to talk to him. We struggle to talk to God. We don't want to do it. And God's like, I love when y'all talk to me. He loves us to talk to him. And so God is inviting Elijah to pour his heart out to him. So the word of the Lord comes to Elijah. God initiated that. And then Yahweh asks Elijah a question to draw out his heart. He's inviting Elijah to just talk to him, to just tell him about it. And then the Lord invites Elijah to leave his man cave and to go stand out on the mount before the Lord. And the Lord will meet him there just like he did with Moses. Look at verse 11. And the Lord said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And this is typical Yahweh. This is what's called a storm theophany. God appears in a storm. But as we see, the storm just merely announced the Lord's presence. And so a strong wind tore the mountain apart and broke rocks into pieces. But the Lord was not in the tornado And then there was an earthquake, but the Lord's not in the earthquake. And then this massive fire breaks out, but the Lord's not in the fire. And so we have Yahweh initiating this, Yahweh inviting Elijah to stand outside the cave. And we might think that the Lord was in the tornado and in the earthquake and in the fire, but he's not. All of these things, the earthquake, wind, and fire, that sounds like a band, doesn't it? All of these things, the earthquake, the wind, the fire, they merely announce God's coming. God was not in any of this wild and crazy phenomena that's happening here. 
It just simply announced his coming. He's coming. I mean, think about that. What kind of God are we dealing with here? What God announces his coming in this way? What kind of God says, tornadoes, earthquakes, fires, now I'm here. Who is this God? Who are we dealing with? But where is the Lord found? Not in the wind, not, not in the tornado, not in the earthquake, not in the fire. Three times we are told that the Lord was not in these things. But verse 12 tells us where God was present in the still small voice. The ESV translates it as the sound of a low whisper. The NIV has gentle whisper. The King James Version has the most popular that we know of as the still small voice. Here's what Maurice Roberts says. The lesson to be learned from this remarkable passage of Scripture is clear. The most sublime of God's works are not his prodigious acts of power, but his acts of grace. God's power is seen to best effect more in his gentleness than his acts of force. What, after all, is the highest expression of God's greatness and glory? It is not his outward displays of vast energy in the material world, wonderful as these are, but his inward acts of grace performed silently in the hearts and lives of men. So the most amazing thing about the all-powerful God that we worship is that he welcomes sinners. He's gracious to sinners. He does not give us what we deserve. The holy, infinitely glorious, eternal God is kind to us. He's gentle with us. He welcomes us in his presence. And so the gentle whisper here, the still small voice is proof that Jesus woos and welcomes you in the middle of your sin and when you're running from him. He woos and welcomes you. There's something downright flabbergasting about an infinitely glorious God wooing us and being gentle with us. Elijah certainly felt this. Elijah responded to the still, small, gentle, welcoming voice of God as an invitation to enter his presence and to commune with him. I mean, it was the gentle voice of Yahweh that drew Elijah in, that drew Elijah out of the cave. Look at verse 13. And when Elijah heard it, that's the gentle whisper, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. So after Elijah heard this quiet, gentle whisper of the Lord, it is then that he wrapped his face and approached God. God's kind, gentle voice drew Elijah closer. This makes us uncomfortable, doesn't it? Because most of us have heard sermons our whole life where God's kindness and gentleness were not highlighted every week and in every sermon. I have preached my fair share of those kinds of sermons. 
We have all heard so many sermons that really just stress the law, what, what we are to do, what God requires of us. But they were never followed up with grace, never followed up with assurance, never followed up with pardon. So when we see that it's God's gentle whisper that pulls Elijah in, not God saying, hey boy, get out here and start obeying. That's not what draws him out. So when we see that it's God's gentle whisper that pulls Elijah in, pulls him out of the cave, it makes us uncomfortable because for many of us, we have just been fed a diet of law, a diet of warnings, a diet of just, you better get your act together or Jesus is going to get you sermons, right? Listen, if Jesus wants to get you, he can just get you. He doesn't need a preacher to tell you that. He can just take you out. We've all heard those fire and brimstone kind of sermons, right? Go better watch, God's going to get you. So for some people, the infinitely glorious, all-powerful triune God being so gentle and so welcoming with Elijah, it makes them uncomfortable. Again, to quote Maurice Roberts, he says, There is nothing about God's being, nature, or ways which embarrasses us more than his gentleness. We readily think of power, majesty, greatness, and sovereignty when we remember God. It is right and good that we should do so. These are all parts of his ways. They do not surprise or unman us because we expect them and are in a manner prepared for them. But God's gentleness is somehow awesome and overwhelming to our souls. It catches us off balance and staggers us by its very wonderfulness. God's kindness to us in Christ catches us off guard, right? I mean, we aren't expecting him to be this good. We get his holiness, we get his power, but his kindness? We're not ready for that. That's why we usually give in to thoughts of shame and condemnation. Right? Because we understand His holiness and we understand our sin. We get that. But kindness, I mean, that comes out of nowhere. We're not ready for it. It catches us off guard. And it caught Elijah off guard too. After all, the reason that he's here on Mount Sinai is to bring a case against the nation of Israel. He's taking them to court, if you will, on Covenant Mountain. Elijah is on Mount Sinai, the place where Moses saw the burning bush, the place where Yahweh gave Moses the Ten Commandments, the place where the nation of Israel entered into covenant with Yahweh, Elijah is on Mount Sinai to tell Yahweh that the nation of Israel has broken covenant with their Lord. It's like Elijah has gone back to the very spot in the wedding chapel where Yahweh married the nation of Israel where they said their vows and exchanged their rings, and at that that very spot where they said, I do, Elijah is calling out the nation's adultery. Elijah went to Sinai to expose the nation's heart, and what does he see? He sees God's heart. He's met with God's kindness. God comes to him in a gentle whisper. Elijah came to accuse the nation. And Yahweh comes in grace. Now think about how the original audience of 1 Kings would have heard this passage. They were being reminded about God's kindness to them. They were being reminded that God's 
most sublime works are not his prodigious acts of power, but his acts of grace. They're being reminded that God's power is seen to best effect more in his gentleness than his acts of force. They're being reminded that his highest expression, the highest expression of God's greatness in glory is his grace to sinners. They were being told, Jesus woos and welcomes you. You're off in exile because you turned away from the Lord and Yahweh is wooing you back and welcoming welcoming you into his presence. So the Lord appears to Elijah and asks him the second time, what are you doing here? And Elijah tells God that the nation has gone astray and only he is left. And there's an emphasis in the Hebrew where it stresses your covenant, your altars, your prophets. They've despised all of your stuff, Lord. Elijah is spilling all the dirt on how the nation has disobeyed Yahweh. It's God's covenant, God's altars, God's prophets that they have ignored. But the Lord replies to Elijah, I've got it all under control. Look at verse 15. And the Lord said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshai, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Mehola, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. And so the Lord responds to Elijah by saying that he will discipline his people. They're not getting away with anything. They're not getting away with anything, Elijah. Yahweh is going to raise up three people to bring judgment on the nation because they have not repented. And so even though God is loving and kind, he does discipline his children. That's proof of his love. And that's what he tells Elijah here. Yahweh gives Elijah a to-do list. Number one, anoint Hazael king over Syria. This represents external military forces that God is going to use to discipline Israel. Then he says, anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And later we'll find in 2 Kings chapters 9 and 10, Jehu will become king and he will kill Jezebel and he'll kill some even more, uh, more of the prophets of Baal. And then the third thing he tells Elijah, anoint Elisha, to be prophet. See, God's not going to leave his people without his word. Elisha would take over from Elijah. God would continue through the prophet Elisha to woo his people to come back home. And so Yahweh is basically saying, you're absolutely right, Elijah. My people have forsaken me. So go anoint these three men because I've raised them up to bring judgment on my people but I will still keep a remnant faithful to me because I keep covenant. I will still woo my people home. So the Lord responds to Elijah pouring his heart out to him. Elijah doesn't see what God sees. Elijah is just looking at his perception of events. It seems like Elijah is the only one left. He doesn't see what God sees. God tells Elijah that he has 7,000 other Israelites who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In other words, no one is getting away with anything. I'm going to discipline my children. And so understand this, Grace. Just because we are in union with Christ does not mean that we will escape the consequences of our sin. It does not mean that God will not discipline us. 
And that's why we must keep hearing the gospel over and over and over again because the gospel is how God woos us and draws us to walk in his ways. And for the original audience, they were being reminded that even though they messed up their lives and they ended up in exile, they too still had access to God's mercy and grace. They too could experience peace with God. They too could offer their hearts once again to Yahweh. They could renew their first love because mercy was available. And you can renew your first love here today, right now. You can start over with God today, right now. Start fresh. Start clean. Mercy is available. You just start new today. Do you need to start new with God and just say, you know what? I've been running from you. I've been living for my own kingdom. I know it. You know it. Can I just start over? And Jesus says, I've been waiting. Come on home. Were the the consequences to their sin, those in Israel in exile, were were they still there? Yeah. There's always consequences to our sin. And these exiles were living it. Being in exile was the consequence of their sin. But they still had access to the mercy and kindness of the Lord to navigate their mess. Though they were in exile, Yahweh was still pursuing the people he loved. He was still wooing them to come home. So this still small voice on Mount Sinai is a reminder to us that our sins never get the last word in our lives. God's promises always get the last word in our lives. There's always hope, no matter how far we've run from God, no matter how bad we've messed up. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let me repeat that because there's someone here who's really messed up their life and you need some hope. There's always hope. No matter how far you have run from God, no matter how bad you've messed up, mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, that doesn't mean that we make light of sin. There are still consequences to sin, We see that in these verses. God is going to discipline his people. As Paul Tripp says, grace never calls what's wrong right. Grace is a way of dealing with wrong. Grace forgives and grace transforms. Grace wipes away sin and grace enables sinners to deal with the consequences of their sin. But grace never calls what's wrong right. Grace is God's way of dealing with wrong. And grace is how God draws you and woos you back to Him. He's not flexing His muscles and saying, you better get in line, boy. That's not how He leads us. Nobody responds to that, do they? When someone tells you to do something in your life, what's your first instinct? Don't you tell me what I'm going to do. Doesn't matter what it is, speed limit. How dare the state of California tell me how fast I can drive? We don't respond to law that way. So God doesn't just say, get your act together. He woos us. Again, to quote Puritan Walter Marshall, he said, God does not drive you along with whips and terrors or by the rod of the schoolmaster of the law. Rather, he leads you and draws you to walk in his ways by pleasant attractions. The love of Christ is the greatest and most pleasant attraction to encourage you to godly living. In other words, Jesus woos and welcomes you. He's leading you, not with whips, not with terrors and threats. He's leading you with cords of kindness, saying, come on, 
follow me. You know my way is better. You know my way is best for you. Let's go. I love you. Come on. He's drawing you to walk in his ways by pleasant attractions. He wins you and draws you out with his love. He woos you with his still, small voice, with his gentle whisper, out of the man cave of your little kingdom of self. Jesus says, leave it behind. Leave your cozy little man cave that you've built in your little kingdom of self. Leave it behind and come with me. So let's be like Moses. Let's be praying, show me your glory. Show me your glory is most seen in Jesus dying for us. The cross is where we see God's glory in all of its sweet splendor. It says Jesus comes down to us from heaven, making himself nothing, that he displays his glory. On the cross, we see the deepest revelation of the very heart of God, Jesus laying down his life for people like us, for people like us, dying in our place for our sins. And so the glory of God is seen in the person of Jesus, and it's seen most clearly at the cross. The glory of God, the weightiness of God, the heaviness of God, the radiance of God shines forth most brilliantly at the cross where Jesus loved us and gave himself for us. And so when we pray, show us your glory, we're praying for God to show us more of his love, more of his mercy, more of his kindness. And who doesn't need more of that? How can I get in on more of that in my life, more of God's kindness to me? I need more. So why not respond to Jesus today by simply saying, show me your glory. You're all invited. And the invitation goes out from our great king. He says, come to me. No matter where you have been or what your sins are, come and welcome. I am the bread of life. I died for sinners. Won't you come and live? So let me ask you today, won't you come and live? Let's pray. Jesus, we take you up on your invitation to come and live. To leave behind the little man caves that we've built in our little kingdom of self where we think we'll be satisfied living there and getting our way. We leave that behind because your gentle whisper is wooing us to come and be satisfied in you. So help us. Help us to forsake our sin. Help us to walk in newness of life as we follow you. Thank you for not leading us with whips and terrors and threats, but drawing us by your pleasant attractions. May we leave here today and say, Jesus is better. May we leave here today and say, what a Savior. In your name we pray, amen.